Welcome to another episode of The Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers and patients can learn about hormones and explore the body's most complex communication system. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Smeaton, Chief Medical Officer for Dutch. As a clinician, I focused on fertility and used Dutch testing to uncover the role that hormones play in a couple's ability to conceive. Now on The Dutch Podcast, I'll be joined by experts in functional medicine who will help us make sense of our body's hormones and take the guesswork out of treating hormone-related issues. On this episode, we have Dr. Kelly Roof, a clinical consultant for Dutch. She's a true expert and consults with healthcare practitioners about their patients' results day in and day out. We're going to be talking about the complex topic of estrogen detoxification. So if you're working with patients whose hormones look great on blood tests, and even maybe when you're looking at those basic hormones, it might actually be the metabolism and the detoxification that's the problem. We're going to cover all the ins and outs of that this week. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you've been with Dutch for how long? A little over three years. And you've probably consulted with hundreds or thousands of healthcare providers at this point. Yeah, I think I am over 1,700 practitioners at this point. That's unbelievable. Uh, And estrogen detoxification is such an important thing for practitioners to understand and really something that even skilled functional medicine doctors don't really learn enough about. Would you agree? I would totally agree. Like in school, I never learned about estrogen detox patterns. That was something that was completely new to me and something that I had to learn after I graduated. So before we dive into the steps of estrogen detoxification and we kind of geek out on that process, tell me a little bit about why it's so important that clinicians consider estrogen detoxification when they're looking at their patients. Yeah, definitely. So um, the way a woman detoxes her estrogens can play a really important role in just the severity of the symptoms she's having but also in her overall risk for developing breast cancer in the future. So I think for every woman, just seeing how she's detoxing her estrogens can be so helpful, not only to help with any symptoms that she is experiencing at that time, but also to help prevent the occurrence of breast cancer in in her later years in the future. Oh, that's interesting. So what I'm hearing is that even for people who aren't symptomatic or don't have a problem, there could still be a value for females to get this tested and understand what their pathways look like. Yes. Yes, definitely. So tell me a little bit about what symptoms a healthcare practitioner might see in their female patient that would clue them in to think that maybe they should evaluate their estrogen detox pathways. So if women aren't clearing out their estrogen properly, a lot of times we'll see symptoms of estrogen dominance. So women might have heavy bleeding, they might have breast tenderness or fibrocystic breast changes, they might have issues with histamine because we know that estrogen slows the DAO enzyme that helps to clear out histamine, right? Um, They might have mood issues, so they might have irritability and anxiety. They could also have issues with ovarian cysts, endometriosis. No, I mean, the other things I sometimes see are like migraine headaches or other signs, just general hormone imbalance. But that list is like so big, you know, really all the symptoms that we think of for women of hormones being out of whack are often related to estrogen dominance just because it's such a common 
thing right. that we see generally. I didn't know that about the um, kind of the histamine intolerance because that seems like that's becoming more and more of an issue or it's at least in our awareness a lot more. And when it's interesting to think about the role of estrogen detoxification because so much of estrogen detox is like puts stress on the liver and strain on the liver. And so I think about how many things are taxing our liver today. And, you know, through that connection, that could be a big piece of why we're seeing so many more people with allergic like symptoms. It's really an interesting connection. Yeah, that's that's true, because when you have excess estrogen, it tends to affect overall detoxification, liver function, gallbladder function. Um, That's why in pregnancy, when our estrogen is super high, a lot of like one of the most common surgeries is just women getting their gallbladder removed because of that cholestasis, cholestasis, I think I'm saying that right. So when you have high estrogen, not only could it be negatively affecting overall liver gallbladder function, but then you've got that, um, that estrogen that's slowing down the DAO enzyme and making it more difficult for the body to get rid of histamine. So I could see overall how high excess estrogen could really play a role in um, histamine issues and immune issues and overall detox issues. So it seems like it would be imperative to take a look at estrogen detox. If you have a patient that has signs and symptoms of estrogen dominance or high estrogen levels, like you described. And then if you did a serum test and found that it was in the normal range or even low, you'd be asking like, you know, maybe my impressions were wrong, but it sounds like maybe this could be a missing piece to that workup is to actually take a look deeper to say, okay, estrogen levels appear to be normal, but there could be other things down the line, like metabolites that are even more potent than the original estrogens, for example, that are causing some of these symptoms. Yeah, it could be helpful. That's one of my favorite things about the Dutch test is we get to see three phase one estrogen metabolites and one phase two estrogen metabolite. And we know that some of these phase one metabolites can cause some oxidative damage in the body, can increase risk for breast cancer, can also cause some just proliferation at the estrogen Mm -hmm. receptor. So like the 16-OH, the 16-hydroxyestrone, is more of a proliferative estrogen. So it just, just imagine it binding to that estrogen receptor and causing tissue proliferation. So with an elevated 16-OH, you might get breast tenderness. You might have more issues with endometriosis. You might have heavy bleeding. Um, so it is really fascinating to look at those downstream metabolites and how they could be influencing the estrogen receptor and the, the person's symptoms. Yeah. I've seen several instances where the metabolites have been the problem for patients. So, um, yep. yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about estrogen detoxification. Now, if you guys are listening in the car, you can't pull out a steroid chart with you or like, um, a detoxification pathway chart or your like Dutch test in front of you. But if you're at home, I'd recommend you pull it out because then you can follow along as we go to kind of see how things measure for yourself or your patient, you know, as you're listening into this podcast. Um, But let's keep in mind, Dr. Kelly, that we have some people who don't have that. So I want to make sure we kind of take it step by step for people who are only listening to avoid confusion with all the kind of scientific nomenclature. So let's talk first about phase one of detoxification. Now, Phase one primarily happens where? So it primarily happens in the liver, like phase one and phase two. 
primarily happening okay. in the liver. But a little, a little bit of it can happen in other parts of the body. So we can all get more into that when we talk about the individual metabolites. Okay, cool. So with phase one and phase two, like you said, it happens in the liver. Can you describe at a high level kind of what happens during those steps? Yeah, so in phase one, we have our parent estrogens, estrone and estradiol. They get hydroxylated into these more water-soluble compounds. So they get hydroxylated into, for example, E1 gets hydroxylated into the 2OH E1, the 4OH E1, and the 16OH E1. And I think about okay, so phase... sorry, wait. E1 is estrone, right? Es so we have yep. like our three main forms. Estrone is E1, estradiol is E2, estriol is E3. And E2 is the one that's like the strongest estrogen or, you know, strongest estrogen in the body. But with the Dutch test, we actually measure the metabolites of E1. But it should be the same kind of preferences for each form of estrogen. Is that right? Because it's the same enzymes that undergo that process? It's, it's similar. And we do measure the estradiol metabolites too. You just have to, like on page two, we have the 2-hydroxy-E2 and the two hydro or the four hydroxy E2. And a lot of people, they say, well, you know, where's the 16 hydroxy E2? And I say, we measure that too. It's actually estriol. And when I learned that, that just like, I had to sit there for 15 minutes to really understand and really like believe it. I was like, wait, 16 OH E2 is also called estriol. They're the same thing. <laughs> they are. That's yeah. It's like, oh, mind blown. You know, all the connections there. Yeah. So when you're looking at the test, Hydroxy is OH, so you might see it abbreviated when we say, you know, 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, you'll see 2-OH, 4-OH, E1, for example. So it gets yes. kind of shortened um, when you're looking. So let's talk more about that phase one process. So here they undergo, like you said, hydroxylation, become more water-soluble. Um, and tell me about the main pathways and kind of how we think about those at Dutch. So overall, when I think about the phase one metabolites, I kind of think of them as these like destructive party people. <laughs> like I call them like they're really rowdy. They, they can cause oxidative damage in the body. They can still bind to estrogen receptors. Like they're kind of up to no good in a way. So we don't, you know, we don't want, we don't want them to stay in phase one for too long. We want to move them over to phase two where they're more stable. You know, they're like the party people go to sleep you know, and they're ready for excretion. <laughs> so I have a um, new image in my head. We have like our, um, it's like a frat party when you're looking at phase one metabolites <laughs> and then phase two metabolites is like the following morning where no one gets up till 11 o'clock, right? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So in phase one, estrone and estradiol can be pushed down into 2OH by CYP1A1. Uh, so that's the enzyme that converts estrone or estradiol to the 2-OH form. It can also be converted to the 4-OH form and the 16-OH form. And for men and women, we want them to be pushing most of their estrogen down the most stable, so like the least party person, right? The most stable 2-OH metabolite. And okay. we want the least amount going over to the 4-OH metabolite because the 4-OH, that's the rowdiest. That's the one that's going to more consistently switch over to that reactive quinone, which can bind to DNA and cause DNA damage and increase risk for breast cancer in the future. 
Now, we've seen that like there's studies on breast cancer, but it's not just breast cancer. It's a lot of chronic diseases could potentially be connected through that mechanism because more oxidative stress just causes cell damage in general. So like in my practice, I do mostly fertility work. I see that a lot with egg and sperm quality, um, but it would go even beyond reproductive health potentially, right? I don't know if there's Mm -hmm. data on that, but, you know, we know that high levels of oxidative stress and DNA damage are linked to far more conditions than cancer. Like pretty much every chronic disease has ties to oxidative stress levels. Definitely. And it seems like the things that tend to push the CYP1B1 enzyme, so that converts estrone and estradiol to the 4-OH, the things that upregulate that pathway, that 4-OH pathway, tend to be like inflammation, smoking, mm. alcohol, certain environmental chemicals. So there are also there's these things that we think about that have been connected to, to the development of cancer and just to um, other health conditions. That's really interesting. So that might be a piece of the mechanism of how, how that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, so it we could have be. Phase one. Yeah. So phase one, we've got kind of 2, 4, and 16 OH forms, these like party people, rowdy, you know, frat party goers. Sorry yeah. for all those of you fraternities. I've met some really nice fraternity people. So they're not all like rowdy rebel causers, right? It's just a yeah, little impression there. So then tell me a little bit about phase two. You said phase two also happens in the liver. Yeah, and phase what two, happens? it also happens in the liver. It's kind of when we take these rowdy intermediates, these reactive intermediates, and we make them uh, less dangerous or more stable, kind of ready for excretion in phase three. And in phase two, a lot of uh, people kind of think that phase two only means methylation, but uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways that these phase one intermediates can be moved over to phase two. We've got Let's see, acetylation, glucuronidation, sulfation, methylation, even adding um, glutathione. So glutathione Mm -hmm. conjugation. These are all different ways that we can take those phase one intermediates and move them over to phase two. But for like the 2OH and the 4OH metabolites, those tend to be methylated. And like the 16OH metabolite tends to be more sulfated and glucuronidated. But you, you see some of the 2-OH and the 4-OH being glucuronidated, for example. So it, they're not they're not specifically just going down the methylation pathway. Mm-hmm. Okay. But methylation, I mean, we hear a lot about methylation. Like that's related to like methylation of folic acid, right? The, the ability to put a methyl group onto a substance. Is it similar for the hormone metabolites? Yeah, yeah that's really, it's a really good question. It's good to clarify that. So in phase two, let's talk about the the 4-OH metabolite. And let's just imagine the 4-OH metabolite is getting methylated over to 4-methoxy-E1, where it's, you know, phase two, it's more stable, it's ready for excretion. So usually what happens in methylation is the COMT enzyme, I think it's catechol-O-methyltransferase enzyme. So COMT is the enzyme that methylates 4-OH and 2-OH. And what what COMT needs is it needs the universal methyl donor, which is SAM, or also known as SAM-E. It needs the methyl group from SAM. So just imagine SAM coming over and saying, here's COMT, here's a methyl group. 
And COMT says, thanks. Thanks, thanks Sam. I'm going to take this methyl group and I'm going to put it on the 4OH or the 2OH to turn it into a phase 2 metabolite. And so COMT, it needs like magnesium, it needs B6, it needs adequate amounts of that universal methyl donor, SAM, in order to function well. Mm. And it can also, my understanding is it can be problematic. Like you almost with estrogen detox want to kind of start at the end and work backwards when it comes to repairing processes for um, men and women both, really, because like if phase two is not happening well, like if methylation is not happening well, and you put someone on supplements to improve estrogen metabolism, but they're focused on phase one, you can actually make things worse, right? Because then they get all of these like party, um, partying phase one metabolites that actually yep. cannot be put to bed, right? And so yep. then you have more of these problematic reactive um, metabolites that are not efficiently kind of moving on. So those things you talk about, the B6, zinc, the choline, SAMI, uh, magnesium, what others am I missing? Betaine, I think, is on that list of things that can be helpful. Yep. Yeah, overall for methylation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I've got most of the B vitamins that are important for methylation. We need, usually we need folate in the active form um, and the B12 in the active form. And, and B6, I like B6 in the active form too. But also B2, B3, zinc, choline, betaine. So choline converts to betaine. Another name for betaine is trimethylglycine. So sometimes you'll see it as TMG or trimethylglycine on the supplements, but those can all be supportive for like the overall folate cycle, the methionine cycle, which is going to help generate CM, but also supporting Mm -hmm. COMT function. Cool. All right. So now we've like put these party metabolites to bed. I've also heard described as them being kind of like wrapped up with a bow and ready to go out. um, Yes. I've heard that too. That's a yeah, good one. I like that uh, analogy. And then they've got to get through the gut and out of the body, basically. That's kind of the third step of metabolism. So tell me a little bit about that kind of phase three of metabolism. Yeah, so phase three, a lot of times we're thinking about the bile and the stool. It's kind of when we take these phase two metabolites and we put them in the stool and we, you know, try to eliminate them. So phase three, when I'm thinking about phase three support, I'm going to ask the patient about their bowel movements. You know, are they having adequate bowel movements? I'm going to ask we about fiber. We love about bowel movements. <laughs> yeah. It always comes back to As bowel movements. <laughs> it always comes uh, back to your bowel movements. Yep. I always end up yeah. bringing out this, the Bristol stool chart. But you want to make sure <laughs> that they're eliminating well. And like you said, you want to work backwards. If they are constipated and they're not going to the bathroom, like maybe they're just going once a week then just think about all those phase two metabolites, just all of those estrogens sitting in the stool. And you know what happens when things just sit there in the intestines, they get reabsorbed back into the body. Mm-hmm. And yep. so um, we really need to help with phase three. We have to get them pooping. We've got to support methylation and then work back up to phase one. Cause I do see this. I see this all the time with DIM. So methane, mm-hmm. DIM, and I3C, people tend to just see estrogen dominance or high estrogen and they jump to DIM. Okay, I'm going to give you 100 or 300 milligrams of DIM a day or twice a day. Um, so sometimes they're using high doses of DIM, 
but the patient's constipated and the patient's methylation activity is poor because maybe they've been on oral contraceptives in the past and it's depleted a lot of the B6, the zinc, and the magnesium, like everything that's needed for methylation to occur successfully. And so DIM, DIM, we know DIM, it does a great job at taking circulating estrogens, pushing them into phase one. So like you said, we get all these reactive phase one metabolites, all these party people that are going to town on your DNA uh, and causing oxidative damage, and they're just not able to be methylated or to be moved over to phase two where they're we put them to bed or you know they're more stable so with dim dim tends to be one of those supplements that women can react to and i think it's because we're just for some women increasing oxidative damage if phase two and phase three are not working well yeah i mean we assume that like if women have high estrogen symptoms estrogen dominant symptoms it's because they're like making too much estrogen but that's not the often not i mean sometimes it's the case but not always right so if you give dim in that situation and the issue is that the you know exit pathway the drain is clogged all you're going to do is overfill the tub and make it worse right um yep. you know, kind of worse clog yeah so that phase 3 i think the other thing that i want to make sure that listeners know about is that this is super dependent on the microbiome which is really cool there's this new research about um the impact of certain microbes in the gut on an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase, and that can actually influence how much estrogen gets reabsorbed. So not only about like elimination and making sure you're going to the bathroom every day, but making sure the gut flora are really healthy because certain strains of bacteria in the gut can actually increase recirculation of estrogen. So that's another like interesting thing. And now we at Dutch added an, a marker for dysbiosis to the Dutch panels when was it? It was summer, this summer, right? Mm-hmm. Indican. Can you talk a little bit about Indican and like why that's there and you know what people might learn from that? Yeah. So just overall, in short, Indican can tell us a little bit about bacterial overgrowth in the gut and a little bit about dysbiosis. And if you want to dive down a little bit deeper, we can talk about how Indican is a tryptophan metabolite. So during tryptophan metabolism, it can get turned into indican. So if someone just has like a high protein diet or they're eating a lot of tryptophan during the time of testing, sometimes the indican marker can be on the higher side. It's not necessarily from dysbiosis. It's just because they're eating a lot of protein. And the opposite is true too. If you've got someone who doesn't get a, a lot of protein, their indican marker might come back normal or low when they actually do have dysbiosis. But overall, in general, it can tell us a little bit about like bacterial overgrowth in the system. So sometimes we see it with with SIBO. Sometimes we see it with H. pylori uh, or PPI use or just general dysbiosis. I love that that marker is there. And, and I will share, we haven't published this data, but internally within Dutch, we're always looking at the samples that come through. And we have seen an association in both men and women and indican levels being high and that being correlated with higher estrogen levels in the body. So we would love to explore that more, but we do see that there is a small but significant impact um, when we look at indican levels. So really cool. All right. Well, just to kind of sum it up, we basically have these phase one of estrogen detox happening in the liver, turning regular estrogens into partying estrogens. Then we have phase two, 
where they get kind of, you know, I don't know, given melatonin or something to go to sleep and relax and chill out. And then from there, they get kind of packaged in the gut and exited from the body. Yeah. Yep. And That's then the right. other thing that I'm learning, other key point is that you really have to work backwards, right? You've got to start with that gut elimination, making sure that that's working well, and then maybe supporting the fallation, making sure that's working well, and then we give the dim and the other compounds that support phase one metabolism. Yes, exactly. You want to work backwards. It's very, very important. And a lot of people just um, kind of don't realize that or it's kind of an oversight. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I've learned a lot today. So Dr. Roof, thank you so much um, for spending the time with us to kind of teach us more about estrogen detoxification. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Make sure you come back next week for more hormone education just like this. And if you're enjoying the Dutch podcast, please help us spread the word, comment, share wherever you listen. Don't forget to also follow at Dutch test on Instagram and Facebook for news, education, and provider resources. And if you're a healthcare provider struggling to find answers for your complex patient concerns, registering as a Dutch provider will give you all the tools you need to profoundly change the lives of your patients. Dutch providers receive advanced hormone education, comprehensive test results, clinical support from docs like Dr. Roof, and much more. Just visit DutchTest.com and click on providers at the top of the page to get started. Thanks again for listening. We'll meet again next week. (music) 